when you're a kid, all the first are just embedded in your mind forever. That first pet, your first bike, your first kiss, and that first death, especially if that death is a friend. When I was 12 years old, we lost a classmate. I remember our teachers, all of them, coming in and talking to us all at once, a big group. And when they told us, I just remember staring at her empty desk. I was sad, but oddly, I was also a little scared. I didn't know why. I knew grandparents could die. I knew it was rare, but even maybe a parent could die. But it had never dawned on me that a kid could die, especially one that I knew. Everything seemed to be just off balance. There are a lot of classmates from that year that I don't remember at all, but I remember Tracy. She will forever be 12 and I will forever remember the last time I saw her. We had a stacked kickball team and honey, she was our ringer. Just the day before we had had a field day and all the games that were played, our team won everything. We sweep the whole thing. I remember she wore bright white knee socks with colored stripes just at the top, short shorts, and an electric light orchestra t-shirt. ELO, baby. She loved them. Tonight, we have Biddy Martin. And let me tell you something. She and I became fast friends. We met in Arkansas at the True Crime Fest. Her sweet Southern charm, easy smile was in possible not to be drawn in. Biddy is smart. She's got a degree in marketing, and if that wasn't impressive enough, and one in nursing. She is kind, and she is a dedicated daughter of Arkansas. She still lives there in her hometown of Hot Springs, where she is a board member of the Garland County Historical Society. Biddy, welcome to Zone 7. Mac, thank you so much. It is such an honor to be here today with you on Zone 7. I, I, I count my lucky stars when I met you up in Fayetteville, Arkansas, the home of the Arkansas Razorbacks. Suey! <laughs> <laughs> and, and met you and, and learned about your podcast. And I didn't, well, when I saw that Emmy, what, how many do you have? Three? <laughs> I have one, but we were nominated three times. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Talk about credentials. Thank you so much for inviting me here today, Mac. Listen, your story is one of a kind, and I think it's going to resonate so much with our audience. So you had a childhood friend, Kathy Ward. Tell us how you came to know Kathy. Kathy, it, I want to just backtrack first. I can't believe that your friend... Her name was Tracy. Mm -hmm. Well, if it hadn't been for my friend and my neighbor across the street, Leslie Tracy, I would have never written the story about our friend Kathy, who died on June 24th, 1966. Kathy was a year younger than me, and I'm a twin. I'm an identical twin, and she's a year younger than Mitzi and I, and she was the same age as Leslie, who lived across the street from us. She would come down to Leslie's house. We knew Kathy. All of Leslie's friends were our friends, and our friends were Leslie's friends, and we were just one big group mm -hmm. at, at Jones School in Hot Springs, Arkansas. A week before 
Kathy died horseback riding out at Black Snake Ranch. She went skateboarding with Leslie at her house. We had a little hill on our street that was perfect for skateboarding. She left her skateboard that day at Leslie's house. And Leslie hid it in some bushes and called her and said, look, I'm going to church camp tomorrow with the twins and I have your skateboard. Come get it. And when I get back this week, we'll go skateboarding. Kathy had had a, a, a chaotic and dysfunctional childhood. Her father was a doctor in Murfreesboro, Arkansas, which was an hour away from Hot Springs. Six years earlier, her mother and daddy separated. And instead of her mother going home to El Dorado, Arkansas, down by the Louisiana border, where she had grown up, she came to Hot Springs. The reason why is on the front cover of my book. Oh, yes. I have the book. And you know what that is? It's the Southern Grill. It's the Southern Club. And on the, on the, the neon sign, it's this can-can girl kicking. You notice that? Above oh, their, absolutely. Above their sign where they have who's appearing that evening. All the movie stars, well, I won't say movie stars, but singers and entertainers would come to Hot Springs and entertain at two different nightclubs back in the 60s. We had illegal gambling. It was rampant. And people from gamblers from Chicago and all over the Midwest came to Hot Springs. And it attracted entertainers like, oh, I don't know, Tody Fields. This is later. Liberace. I think Phyllis Diller came. But anyway, I think that's what attracted Kathy's mother to Hot Springs as a young single, separated mother. She was 38 years old when she came to Hot Springs. She had three children, and Kathy was the middle child. And I know I'm going really in-depth in the story, but I will tell you this. Kathy had a very chaotic and dysfunctional life because her mother was an alcoholic. Her father married his nurse in Murfreesboro, Arkansas, an hour away. And her mother was still trying to put on pretenses of being a doctor's wife. Right. And that's the reason this horseback riding came about. She had begged her mother to let her go out there with her friends to ride. Her mother kept saying no. And for some reason, the week of June 24th, she acquiesced and, and took her out and bought her fancy riding job, well, riding pants. They were red riding pants and jodhpur boots. Kathy went out to the ranch, and she never went back home. Well, you know, when you think about horseback riding, it was always the girls that came for money. Yes and no in this case. Right. No in this case. But I'm saying when you think back of the, of the young girls that did the horseback riding every week, typically they came for money. So to your point, if her mama is trying to keep up those pretenses. I, I, you're right. You're right, Mac. I never thought about that. So you wrote a book called Snake Eyes. And let me tell you, the cover caught my attention, but so did the back when you're talking about Al Capone and other gangsters that frequented that area as well. Right out of the gate, you describe her mama getting a phone call. And I'm quoting here. These are your words. Kathy was lost somewhere on the trails, but said they knew she'd be all right when they found her. Now that to me as a mama is one of those heart-stopping phone calls. You don't even have to finish that sentence. If you say Kathy's lost, that's, that's all I'm going to hear. Because supposedly this was the first time she'd ever 
been on a horse. She wanted to go riding. Mama said, no, you can't go. No, no, no. And then all of a sudden, yes, you can go. Let's go get you some clothes. And she's out riding. And before her mom can pick her up, they're calling her, telling her, Kathy's lost somewhere out on the trail. Kathy had a boyfriend at this time named Mike that had given her a piece of jewelry. Yes, he was the quarterback of the opposing junior high school, which was very daring and unconventional back then to date across school lines. Back in the 60s, you dated somebody from your school. She was a beautiful girl. They met at our Y-Teen dances on Friday nights, and that's how they met and started dancing. And yes, he had given her a necklace the Wednesday before she went riding on Friday. Now, this ranch owner... You paint a sinister picture of him right off the bat. And again, I quote, at 3.48 p.m. on Friday, June 24th, 1966, Frank Davis, the 42-year-old Black Snake ranch owner, called the Sheriff's Department to report an accident. What did Frank Davis tell law enforcement about Kathy Ward? He told them that she fell off the horse and was dragged to death and that he couldn't catch the horse in time to save her. But he was a skilled horseman. In fact, he was a trick rider. He could have caught her. Now, there are rumors. I don't know if you want to go over the rumors, but there are rumors about what actually happened. Now, Sugar, you know good and well I want to hit them rumors. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Several different rumors. One of which is that we heard at school that she had been raped and murdered. Of course, none of our teachers nor our parents would talk about it. But those rumors were everywhere. And supposedly, he had raped her and then murdered her. He supposedly hit her with a rock over the head. And then he realized, oops, I killed her. So he attached her foot, one of her feet, to the stirrups, tied it in there, and hit the horse's back and let it take off and drag her. But then that doesn't make sense when you go to the back of the book and you read about a girl that was there when it happened, and she claimed that she went with him to to search for Kathy, and she's the one that found her. So I don't know. There were a lot of rumors. Well, now that's one thing I want to touch on. He actually got one of her friends to go with him to search for her. Now, he knew where she was. So not only was that young girl fixing to realize her friend is dead, but she's going to be the one to find her? He was setting her up. Oh, absolutely. Because then if you remember later on, he set her up again. This little girl, 13-year-old little girl, he set her up again. In another instance, with his second, what turned in, evolved into his second murder. Yeah, I mean, he knew he was going to add trauma to her life, and he did it anyway. And he made her such a critical witness, even though she didn't know exactly what she was seeing. She thought it was just a horrible accident at first, right? Uh, She was so traumatized that when I tried to interview her for the book, she wouldn't talk to me. I, I went downtown. Her daughter worked at a store downtown, and I went down there several times to ask her if her mother would give me an interview. And she said, well, come back, and I'll talk to her. And each time she said, no, mother just can't just won't talk to you. Well, come to find out last March, I was speaking at a an event and her daughter was there 
And she came through and was wanting me to sign her book. And she says, mother wishes she would have talked to you years later. But it, it was traumatic for both her and a, another little girl that was there with them. It was traumatic for the whole town. Like when you mentioned parents and teachers wouldn't talk, I think that comes from just this overwhelming, it's almost too horrible to talk about. Even her mother, her family wouldn't talk about it. Her little sister was 10 years old when Kathy died, but she was 18 when she learned it was actually a murder. And she told me that. She said, we never talked about it. And she explained how she learned that her sister was actually murdered. Again, in the book, there's a part where you're talking about her lifeless body being taken to Gross Mortuary on Central Avenue. And you say just three weeks earlier, she had gotten her report card and was looking so forward to the summer. And, you know, that's every kid. That's every one of us. We remember, just give me that report card and I'm going to run out this door. I don't even care what's on it. And have the best summer ever. Yes. And she had a new boyfriend and the big quarterback and everything was going great in her life. Tell us a little bit about Mary Sue Tracy and her daughter, Leslie. They were my neighbors. Leslie, Les, Mary Sue was Leslie's mother. They lived right across the street from us. Miss Tracy, I didn't really call her Mary Sue. I called her Miss Tracy. She was a fifth grade substitute teacher in Kathy's room. Her teacher was sick and went out on sick leave and Miss Tracy replaced her. And the first thing she did was ask the kids to please write something about themselves. And she's wanting to get to, to know each of the children. When she read Kathy's paper, it just tugged at her heart. And it, it was so emotional, she couldn't understand, she couldn't believe that a, a fifth grader could write like Kathy wrote. She took, Miss Tracy took that paper home and stuck it in her, probably in her nightstand or somewhere in her bedroom. And it stayed there until the day she died. Maybe she had taken it home because she was going to share it with Kathy's mother to possibly get Kathy some help because she said, Kathy wrote on her paper, my father is a doctor, but my parents are divorced and I miss him. I like it here now that I'm making friends, but I don't like being here. That just tugged at Miss Tracy's heart. And for some reason, she took it home with her and they were close. And when Kathy would, I guess that's how they became really close. Miss Tracy and Kathy did. And then when Kathy would come down to Leslie's, Miss Tracy introduced Kathy to her daughter, Leslie. They weren't in the same class, but they were in the same year. They became good friends because we only lived two blocks away from Kathy. And uh, every time she would come down to Leslie's house, Kathy would stop and first visit with Miss Tracy and Leslie would just sit in her room because she knew that Kathy would talk to her mother because she couldn't, she was a substitute as a mother too, because Kathy's mother was home with her bottle. And you know, when you're working a cold case, and I tell people this all the time, there are so many roadblocks that people don't even realize has happened. So you've already talked about one, somebody that just wouldn't talk to you. They had information. They knew the story. They knew Kathy. They were there. Literally, they were there, but wouldn't talk to you. But gross mortuary burned down and all the files with it. And then the coroner, the coroner didn't keep any files. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Keep going. Keep going, man. 
other officials, and this is my favorite part, when you say other officials, quote, had bad memories. <laughs> that is so <laughs> That was the sheriff. Oh, yeah. He don't know nothing, don't mm-hmm. remember nothing, didn't see nothing, didn't hear nothing. Yep, I appreciate it. <laughs> but, and this is also critical for people, but you didn't give up. And you kind of went old, old school on this. And some of our folks may not even know, but you went Dewey Decimal System. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did Dewey and microfilm and everything. You're yep. right. That library reference desk, honey. I'm grateful to them here at the Garland County Library, indeed. And, and also, though, I must admit, the courthouse, the circuit court clerk, Christy Womble, was so good to me. She dug up old files, and I mean, she had to go outside the courthouse to where they kept all their old files and search for that year and pull them and brought them back to the courthouse for me to dig through. And I will say, she's also done that on my next book. It's so great to have a good contact like that. I'm telling you, it's a team effort, all of it. The Garland Historical Society obviously is a gift, but then you've got the old newspapers and the reference desk, and you just, you know, again, being a child, you might not have remembered the date that she died. So that's the that's the first thing you had to find, right? Right, and that took forever. We, we couldn't remember when it was. I thought it was in the summertime. Leslie thought it was in September, and for the life of me, I could not find it. I went through so many reels of microfilm looking for the story because I knew it would be on the front page of the newspaper. Now, she died June 24th, 1966, but the June 25th issue, she wasn't mentioned. Right. And and what, what it was is that in our town, we had two newspapers, a morning edition called the Sentinel Record, and the evening edition was the New Era. Well, the library only had the morning edition. The weekend edition was only in the new era, which was the evening. So they didn't have that. That's why I wasn't able to find it. Because if you remember, one of her boyfriends searched also. And he came to the same conclusion as me, that 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 day was missing in the microfilm. Well, it was because they didn't have the correct newspaper. And I had to go to Little Rock to the Arkansas History Commission to find that newspaper. Now, see, that's something, too, for people that are investigating anything. We had the Atlanta Journal and Atlanta Constitution, same type thing. But if you don't realize you're only looking at the morning edition and there's an evening edition somewhere, so that's that's good to remind people to look for those different things. Now, in your research, you talked to 60 people. So you are getting the whole victimology, the whole suspectology. You're getting as much of this story as you possibly can because you're talking about a small town. So if you're talking to 60 people, that's a pretty good sample. Now, we're not that small, Matt. Well, you're not that small. But I'm we just are saying, compared to Atlanta, indeed, we are. But. but I'm saying 60 people associated with any case would be a good sample. I did talk to as many people as I knew, knew about Kathy's death and might have some spinoff from it. And after I signed the contract with my publisher and I had three months to get the book ready to submit to them, I was still adding, I was still catching little 
interviews here and there of, of people that I would hear would say something like online, I'd read something, was calling them up and say, hey, you said this about the murder and Frank Davis. And I would interview them and I'd stick them in. And I kept doing that until the submission date, which was March of 2021. Now, you and your group of childhood friends and your sister, y'all have traveled. Y'all have made it an annual event to go research this case. Tell us about that a little bit. Because in my mind, I just see y'all like loading up the convertible and going out Thelma and Louise style, trying to, you know, avenge this wrong that has happened to your friend. Well, the one thing that we do do is that every June 24th, we know where we will be. And that is in Murfreesboro, Arkansas, at their cemetery, right around the corner of their town square where Kathy is buried. And you're right. It is an adventure. And especially we, we had something very strange happened the first year that we went, but we go every year. And if we couldn't go, it'd be very traumatic to us because it's become like a holiday to us. We know where we'll be on June 24th. You're right. And you know, we talk a lot about loyalty on this show. I'm big on loyalty. And, you know, just the idea as a mama that a group of friends would continue to think about a child decades and decades and decades later. It's moving and it's extraordinary to me. Well, thank you. So now you took something very significant to the grave site that first year you went back. Tell us about that. You're right. The first year that we went to Kathy's grave, we of course took flowers, but we also took her childhood skateboard that she had left at Leslie's house the week that she died. Leslie's had that all these years. And at at one point around Y2K, Leslie thought she had lost the skateboard, Kathy's skateboard, or else it had been stolen by her 'er ne'er-do-well son-in-law. She was bummed out about that. I never knew that she had Kathy's skateboard until one day in 2014. I was working up in New York. I was a travel nurse working in the operating up in New Rochelle. And I called up Leslie and I said, hey, I'm coming home in two weeks and I want to start, I want to go to the library and try to find Kathy's obituary or story, whatever we can find. That's when Leslie told me, hey, I've had Kathy's skateboard all these years. She never told me and Mitzi that story. And she told me how she, she had vanished. But then one day that year in 2014, She had a handyman over at her house, and he came walking in her living room. He said, hey, look what I found upstairs in the attic. She looked at it. He was holding Kathy's vintage skateboard. Mm. Leslie ran over to him and grabbed it and hugged it. And she told me that story. And I asked her, I said, well, what day? When did he find it? You know, the date? Because for some reason, I knew the date would be important. And she said, well, I don't know. I wrote him a check. And I'll I'll text you the date. Well, by that time, two weeks later, I was back in I was home in Hot Springs for my two weeks off down here, and that's when we went to the library and we were searching for Kathy's information. Leslie told me that the skateboard had appeared on June twenty fourth, two thousand fourteen, and it didn't click until after 
we finally found her death date at the Historical Society, and I put two and two together that her skateboard reappeared on the 48th anniversary of her death. That is unbelievable. I would have never written the book if that hadn't happened, I'll be honest with you. Isn't that something? So let's circle back to Frank, because at this point, if I just hit some highlights for people, it's going to sound like I'm lying, that I'm just making this up. But he goes on to murder again. He murders his wife, shoots his mother-in-law, goes to prison, marries a fifth time, escapes, somehow gets paroled after all of this and flees to Oregon. Now, what in the world? Now, this to me is the reason the book needs to be written. You're like the only one calling Frank out. He, there were so many crazy stories with him even before all of that. But we did call him out. And I was lucky enough to meet his son by his fourth wife, who was a baby the night he murdered his mother mm. in cold mm. blood. And he told me, he gave me Frank's prison records. Frank had made this old, he'd made a briefcase out of leather there in the prison. You could tell it was tooled. You, you can tell that it was made in a prison or at a summer camp. You remember making all those leather little, you know, well, that's what it looked like. And it was full of all of his paperwork and all this stuff and the research. And he was going to free himself. And he finally did it. But anyway, his son told me, he said, I won't call him father or dad. Of course, it, Frank's dead. But he said, I will not call him my father. And he said, in fact, I drove down to Texas and spit on his grave. And he was raised by his grandmama, the one that Frank shot? He was raised by his maternal grandmother. Yes. Well, I'm going to quote you again. I can still picture Kathy the last time I saw her. Three of us girls watching her determined to get home. We had no idea what was to follow. Many times I've wished I could go back and change the past. What I can do now is share this story so that all these years later, Frank Davis will not get away with murder. That's pretty powerful, honey. Well, thank you. It's, it's coming from the heart. I mean, I'm telling you, there's nothing like childhood friends. There's nothing like that bond. I don't think there's hardly anything deeper, except when you have children. But I just think, you know, every single thing, when you're thinking about those summers and your adventures and going to camp and skateboarding and going to school and buying new clothes and you know, all the secrets that are told in the clubhouse type stuff. There's just no no comparing that to anything else in your life. You're right. She died 13 years old. She had her whole life ahead of her. She'll now live on in my book. Amen. Right on. Y'all, I'm going to end Zone 7 the way I always do with a quote. And when I saw this quote, I thought of Diddy immediately and Kathy. Time doesn't take away from friendship, nor to separation. Tennessee Williams. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7. <laughs>